0: Hello, and welcome to the H.P. Lovecraft Literary Podcast. We have recently upgraded our server to accommodate our growing audience. We are happy to be back online and appreciate your patience during the transition. Please consider donating at our site so that we may continue to provide service without interruption. Thanks for your support, and welcome to part one of The Whisperer in Darkness, featuring guest Andrew Lehman, reader Matt Foyer, and the music of Troy Sterling Neese, right
1: here at hppodcraft.com. Bear in mind closely that I did not see any actual visual horror at the end. To say that a mental shock was the cause of what I inferred, that last straw which sent me racing out of the lonely Akeley farmhouse and through the wild domed hills of Vermont in a commandeered motor at night, is to ignore the plainest facts of my final experience. And notwithstanding the deep extent to which I shared the information and speculations of Henry Akeley, the things I saw and heard, and the admitted vividness of the impression produced on me by these things. I cannot prove even now whether I was right or wrong in my hideous inference. For after all, Akeley's disappearance establishes nothing. People found nothing amiss in his house, despite the bullet marks on the outside and inside. It was just as though he'd walked out casually for a ramble in the hills and failed to return. There was not even a sign that a guest had been there, or that those horrible cylinders and machines had been stored in the study. That he had mortally feared the crowded green hills and endless trickle of brooks among which he had been born and reared means nothing at all either, for thousands are subject to just such morbid fears. Eccentricity, moreover, could easily account for his strange acts and apprehensions toward the last.
2: That is the opening paragraph of H.P. Lovecraft's The Whisperer in Darkness, and we're talking about it here on the H.P. Lovecraft Literary Podcast. I'm Chad Pfeiffer.
3: And I'm Chris Lackey. And with us is our third guest host. Uh, he's been on the show before, and we're so happy to have him back again, Andrew Lehman. Hello. <laughs> How's it going? <laughs> uh, it's it's going fine, thank you.
2: So this is a weird way that, uh, for us to be discussing the story, actually, because now normally when Chris and I do the show, we, we talk over Skype, but we don't have the video up. No. Uh, here, since we have a guest, we thought we'd bring up the video. So it's almost like you're in a little brain case. Yeah, totally. Uh, oh. Talking to Andrew and I here. Yeah, like, like in the store. <laughs> Come join us. It will be fabulous. Now, the uh, the reader of that opening paragraph was Matt Foyer, who's been on the show before. Uh. There's some kind of connection. Why do we have all these people on the show?
3: Oh, I know, I know, I know. Go ahead, Chris. <laughs> because <Yeah>. Andrew <laughs> is uh, the producer and co-writer of the film adaptation of The Whisper in Darkness, and Matt Foyer is the lead actor playing Albert Woolmarth. And you had a hand in the making.
0: Of and that I film was of an associate
2: producer. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, oh, okay. yeah. Whatever. <laughs> Okay, well, cool. Uh, So hopefully as we go through the story, we'll be able to touch on some of the things that went into the making of the film, which I believe is going to premiere in September.
0: Well, it had its international premiere in Greece uh, at a film festival in Athens a few weeks ago. It has its American festival premiere uh, sometime between mid-May and mid-June in Seattle. Oh, okay. It's going to premiere at the Seattle International Film Festival. Oh, rad. It'll premiere here in Los Angeles, our big... Red carpet premiere for ourselves mm-hmm. is in September at the HP Lovecraft oh. Film Festival in San Pedro.
2: Great. Well, everybody, keep tabs on that, yes. and uh, we'll be sure to to continue to announce those screenings on the show, so you yep. know where to go. See. And, it. Mean,
0: and meanwhile, we're working on getting the you know the DVD version available. I can't. I, I wish I could tell you when it'll be ready, but I we just we just don't know.
2: Uh, one last note before we jump into the story. Uh, last week we didn't have a show, but we posted links to our. Goofy Lovecraftian sitcom pilot The oh, Ward, yeah, the ward. Uh, On YouTube And that is free for all to consume If you didn't catch it on Facebook or on our site The links are there It's a, sort of a 1960s style Goofy Adams Family type thing It's Pretty fun Some of the uh, music and the actors in it Should be familiar to the audience So um, check it out Forward it around A few people have been asking You know if we're going to make any more And we're not at this time But <laughs> uh, enough people watch it Who knows so Let's move on We
3: got Whisper to Attack
2: Alright well uh, Before we get far into it Want to get some quick facts about the story
3: out? There's many interesting facts about it. It's a, uh, It was written in February 24th through uh, September 26th uh, in 1930. Hmm. It was first published in Weird Tales back in August 1931, so it's pretty quick. Um, it was the most that Lovecraft ever got paid for
2: a story, actually, which oh, was
3: no $300, something like that. It was quite a bit yeah, of that's money. that's pretty
2: good. Yeah. yeah. There you go. So, th- so 31, he made some dough off of it. I was actually surprised, Um, and we'll talk about it a little more later, but we, we were just covering the mound a few episodes ago. And there's a lot of stuff from that story that shows up here. Yeah. And I, I would never have known it in my first reading. Of no, the I had
3: no idea. Like uh, uh, K- Kinyan. Yeah. Kinyan? Yeah,
2: mm-hmm. the same of it. Yath and Kinyan, Sathagua, and all those things right. were originally in the in the mound, and they're, they're brought up in this story. So references that went right over my head when I read this the first time that... Now, because I went through that terrible, terrible story, <laughs> at least I, at least I can understand them. Yeah. Um, well, okay. So, in, in in that opening paragraph that we heard, our, our main character, who we'll learn is named Wilmarth, kind of hinted at the conclusions of the story, and he gives some information. We'll be in Vermont. A guy named Henry Akeley has disappeared. There's some bullet marks, some strange cylinders and machines, and some kind of horrible revelation. Um, we know all that, but but where do we begin? Maybe maybe Wilmarth himself can tell us.
1: The whole matter began, so far as I am concerned, with the historic and unprecedented Vermont floods of November 3rd, 1927. I was then, as now, an instructor of literature at Miskatonic University in Arkham, Massachusetts, and an enthusiastic amateur student of New England folklore. Shortly after the flood, amidst the varied reports of hardship, suffering, and organized relief which filled the press, there appeared certain odd stories of things found floating in some of the swollen rivers. So that many of my friends embarked on curious discussions and appealed to me to shed what light I could on the subject. I felt flattered at having my folklore study taken so seriously and did what I could to belittle the wild, vague tales which seemed so clearly an outgrowth of old, rustic superstitions. It amused me to find several persons of education who insisted that some stratum of obscure, distorted fact might underlie the rumors.
2: Yeah, so that's our setup. Yeah. Will Marth is a jerk. <laughs> <laughs> well, he's a skeptic. I mean, he, so he's a guy, he's a literature guy. He also focuses on, on folklore, which is a, a great Lovecraftian archetype. Yeah. Yes. A character. Yeah, he's definitely the classic Lovecraftian protagonist. Mm-hmm.
0: A, uh, <laughs> professor who has sort of a side interest in the occult or folklore. Right who gets approached by other people with tales of strange things and asks
2: you, tell us what what you can make of it. And to be specific, what these people are finding in the river, there's a couple descriptions here which are are pretty strange.
1: They were pinkish things, about five feet long, with crustaceous bodies bearing vast pairs of dorsal fins or membranous wings and, and, and several sets of articulated limbs, and with a sort of convoluted ellipsoid, covered with multitudes of very short antennae, where a head would ordinarily be.
2: And other accounts are similar as well, it says.
1: The creatures were a sort of huge, light red crab, with many pairs of legs, and with two great bat-like wings in the middle of the back. They sometimes walked on all their legs, and sometimes on the hindmost pair only, using the others to convey large objects of indeterminate nature. On one occasion, they were spied in considerable numbers, a detachment of them wading along a shallow woodland watercourse, three abreast in evidently disciplined formation. Once a specimen was seen flying, launching itself from the top of a bald, lonely hill at night, and vanishing in the sky after its great flapping wings had been silhouetted an instant against the full moon. Yeah.
2: So that those, those are some accounts from folklore. And also a description of what they're finding in the river. Yeah, exactly. In the flooded waters,
0: the stuff that they're finding in the rivers matches the description of the things that people have found in the wake of this flood matches the descriptions that previously appeared in all this folklore, and that's why people turn to Wilmarth to say, "What, what is it that people are finding?" Because the stuff that's washing up in the in the flood waters is a bears a striking resemblance to these creatures that have only been described from folklore. Yeah.
2: And all of the differing accounts seem to agree on the
0: specific. Yeah, I mean, there's slight variations from one version to the next, but when you look at them all in total, it, it, it seems like they're all talking about the same basic thing, and it seems to be this these those ones, the old ones, depends on who you're asking what they're called, but those right. things that live in the Vermont
2: hills. Yeah. And, and, and once again, it's the Native Americans who actually have the best amount of knowledge about what the things are. And that account that we heard there about them, of being able to fly and, and walking in a disciplined formation. All that kind of comes from what the Native Americans have
3: laid out. And that was collected by Eli Davenport. He had a manuscript that he took all the oral traditions and he kind of put them in this this book which gets brought up a couple yeah, times Yeah,
2: Eli
0: Davenport is a folklorist from the mid-19th century yeah. who collected all sorts of these legends of those ones from the Vermont Hills and put them all in a, a monograph which Wilmarth has read and very few other people have read. Apparently it's extremely rare and hard to find. And it's
3: not real no it's not it's not a real book <laughs> i can't go read this okay no you can't check out well,
0: not yet anyway you can't check out <laughs> the davenport manuscript oh, that's too bad i'm I'd working like on it i'm working on it. <laughs> <laughs> other
2: things that are talked about in these legends is that you know up in the hills there are these caves of uh problematical depth with boulders in front of them that which, could hardly be accidental no. Yeah, exactly and it seems like the things more or less let people alone unless they get too close and then they disappear and then, yeah they strangely the people. The people, yeah. Not the Yeah, not the the, things, right. yeah. One, one of my favorite details it said tales besides of buzzing voices in imitation of human speech, which made surprising offers to lone travelers on roads and cart paths in the deep wood. <laughs> like, hey, bzz, 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 hey, I got a Rolex. Bzz, 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 two bucks. Can you believe that price? Bzz, it's unbelievable. Bzz. How about a massage? <laughs> <Bzz>. <laughs> two dollars. Can you believe it? <laughs> Yeah, lots of folks attribute these things to uh, the Puritans. Think they're part of the the devil's word. Right. The, uh, the Irish think they're affiliated with the little people. Right. Yep. The Penacook Indians say they came from the Great Bear in the sky. They're they're really just colonials. You know, they're from outer space. They just got an outpost here. Yeah. Right. So they can do some kind of mining or there's something.
0: That... Yeah, they need some sort of metal that they can only obtain in the hills of Vermont, apparently, or mm-hmm. maybe the Himalayas. Somewhere in the mountains of
2: Earth are minerals that these things need for whatever it is that they're doing. Right. And Wilmarth, he laughs at all of this and, and can tie it into all sorts of legends like the Abominable Snowman legend and this kind of thing. And, and the more he scoffs, though, the more his colleagues assert that it's possible. And, uh, you know, he says they, he thinks they're trying to make the fiction of Arthur Mackinac into reality. But they're more, you know, citing the extravagant books of, of Charles Fort. What do we know about him? Charles Fort is uh, regarded by many people
0: as sort of the father of cryptozoology and UFO studies. He was a uh, newspaper reporter. His career path is, has a lot of very interesting parallels to H.P. Lovecraft's. He was a guy who sort of struggled to make a living as a writer all his life. He, he wrote at about the same time as Lovecraft. I think he was a little bit older than Lovecraft. He spent a vast amounts of his time at either the New York Public Library or in the Reading Room at the British Museum in London going through old newspapers and collecting stories of anomalous events things that people had seen and couldn't explain he kept massive like index card files of all these uh, citations and he ended up writing four incredibly dense and somewhat hard to read books about paranormal phenomena he is credited with having invented the the term if not the concept of teleportation hmm. he's a very interesting guy and it's it's very hard to sort of summarize his position he is he's he's very misunderstood by most people i think he was sort of a satirist of science. He thought that scientists—he uh, seemed to have especially a, a thing against astronomers. Um, <laughs> really? Yeah, he seemed to think that astronomers claim to know what's really happening, but but you know they keep making shit up as they go along. Right. And you know he he thought it was ludicrous for scientists to pretend that they understand the world any better than anybody else just because they're scientists and he cited you know innumerable examples of of astronomers in particular but other kinds of scientists too saying we've discovered the latest thing this is the truth and then you know six months later saying oh no that was wrong here's the truth oh no that was wrong here's the truth mm-hmm. you know they keep claiming they know the truth and then they keep changing what it is so he he was a fascinating, fascinating guy. Kind of passed into,
2: I mean, people say and something is and, right? Or the Fortian Times. He, the
0: and Times is a great magazine published out of London. Um, in his lifetime, he was uh, great friends with Theodore Dreiser. There was another guy named Tiffany Thayer who was a great friend of his, and they all thought he was a genius, and they wanted to celebrate him during his lifetime and formed this and organization that they tried to trick him into joining. And, you know, once he realized that this was a club about him, he said, I don't want to be part of a club about him. <laughs> me. Um but they they formed it they formed it anyway and that sort of turned into over the years it the Fordian wow. organization now publishes there have been a couple different ones and Fordian Times is a magazine that sort of celebrates ongoing exploration of cryptozoology and UFology and the ways in which Folklore sometimes seems to be real. Alien big cat phenomena that happen in England all the time, apparently. What? Yeah, there's all these sightings of mysterious panthers or whatever. Oh right, nobody right, right. knows what they are, but they're in England all sure. the time. Apparently, crop circles, mm-hmm. you know,
2: uh, ghosts. Well, hauntings. big cats. That's a, that's a great. But ur- that's an urban legend in America, though. Too remember, Chris? We, we know. had a, a cougar stalking the Quad we Cities did. in the, Quad <laughs> the cities. 90s. And that was years later, because you you
3: were reading that book about urban legend, and then you said, "Yeah, you go, hey, remember that cougar?" And I go, "Oh yeah, I totally remember. It was on the news and everything." And then you read out of the book, you go, "Back in 1990
2: in Moline, Illinois, there was a cougar scare. I know, even though there
3: was no proof of it whatsoever, it was just people yeah. saying that they saw a cougar." And nobody,
2: and enough of them said it that it got reported yeah. on and then became, it became more of a fact. But we were both like kind of heartbroken. I, when I read the entry in the Urban Legend encyclopedia, it said, you know, great cats in the Midwest. And I'm like, well, that's funny, but that actually happened, you know, in my <laughs> hometown. And then, I, then at the end, it actually it said specifically what we were talking about. Fort's we
0: talk- yeah. 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 attitude was always, he didn't necessarily believe any of this was true, mm. but he also what, thought scientists were ridiculous for rejecting it out of hand as being impossible. Mm. On the other hand, Fort seems to have actually believed that the Earth was the center of the solar system, and that the stars weren't actually very far away. Uh, and, hmm. You know, so some of what Fort seems <laughs> to have believed crazy. also seems pretty pretty crazy. Yeah. He would be the first to say, "I don't know." Mm-hmm. The beginning of wisdom is admitting that you don't know anything, so, right? Yeah. Fort is a so
3: crazy I don't subject. know if you guys know this, but Charles Fort, Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. Houdini and Lovecraft fought crime together.
2: What coming to a theater There
3: was no, no. There was a, uh, a comic book called Necronauts that came out in the mid or late oh, '80s. This. Necronauts? Yeah. Necronauts, Necronauts, yeah, Necronauts, and it it has those four fighting. I don't know if they're fighting crime, maybe cult, some kind of kind of supernatural cult type of thing. But uh, it's it's pretty mm. cool if you if you can find it. It's it's actually well drawn and and fairly interesting. But
2: well, there's a number of or at least two that are actually in development, Houdini and Conan Doyle projects now. Oh really? There's a TV show and a movie that, that are based on these them fighting crime. I you know, doing ridiculous things. Well, <laughs> I wanted to point out this one sentence we were talking about, you know, dismissive scientists. There's something Wilmarth says, and you know I'm a huge fan of Lovecraft using the hyphenated adjective. He says, "Save during infrequent local scares." Only wonder-loving grandmothers and retrospective (laughs) nonagenarians ever whispered of beings dwelling in those hills. If Wonder-loving grandmothers (laughs) is not the greatest (laughs) phrase I've ever heard in my life. If I ever form my own secret society or motorcycle gang, that's what it's going to be called. (laughs) Wonder-loving
3: grandmothers? grandmothers.
2: (laughs) Good job, Lovecraft. Well, as we get into the second chapter, we find that this intellectual fencing between Wilmarth and and his colleagues is sort of broken out into the papers. They're starting to publish their letters and uh, on both sides of the debate, and it's become sort of a, a local pastime to, to read these letters back and yeah. forth of debating this stuff in the Arkham Advertiser. Uh, it kind of makes Walmart a little celebrity, and it's what catches the attention of Henry Wentworth Akeley in Vermont. What we learn about Akeley is he's from this long line of scholar farmers, uh, lives in a remote part of the state. He's got one son who ran off to get well, what didn't run off, but he's got one son who lives <laughs> in San Diego, California. Um, basically, he's a very educated reckless
3: yeah he's in mathematics yeah, he, astronomy biology anthropology folklore all of it and he studied at the university of vermont he describes
0: himself as a hermit now he mm-hmm. sort of has retired from the world and has shut himself up in the old family farmhouse yeah. in townshend and just writes a lot of letters and dwells on a
2: lot of bizarre scary things that he sees out the window and one of these letters that he writes is to Wilmarth after he's read these accounts in the paper and, uh, and Wilmarth in the story says, well, I, unfortunately, I don't have any of these materials anymore, but uh, I, he's got this almost photographic memory. He can, he yeah. can somehow transcribe everything, every letter that he's received. I, obviously, these have made a huge impact on him, so it does make sense that he would have, he'd be pretty familiar with their content. Right. He says, uh, I, I can transcribe the first letter I got from Akeley for you just based on memory. The letter just says, hey, I've been seeing your reports. Akeley's Akeley saying, normally I would agree with you. With your side on this debate. Right. Uh, Certainly in
0: public, he would agree with it. Yeah. Yes.
2: But I've got evidence that these things might be real. As Andrew said, he lives out in Townsend Village uh, on the side of Dark Mountain, and he's seen footprints of of these things. He was originally interested himself based on the stories of the locals of of what these things might be up there in the hills. So he's taken an active kind of researcher's interest in this. And he even took a phonograph recording using a dictaphone and a wax blank of the things talking up on Dark Mountain in their crazy, buzzing voices. How does that work? What does a dictaphone look like? What, what is it?
0: A dictaphone is, it's a cylinder recording device, very similar to sort of the original phonograph invented by Thomas Edison. It's a um, wax cylinder uh, that has like this hard wax, and there's a needle, and the needle is connected to a, you know. A, a horn of some kind? Or well, it's basically, I mean, it's a microphone, but mm-hmm. it's, it's a mechanical process rather than an electric. So physically imprints. The the vibrations from mm -hmm. the diaphragm on the microphone physically get translated into the wax. Right. And then when you switch over the mechanism, it performs the exact same process in reverse, and it plays
2: back what it recorded in the wax. So he's got this wax cylinder with the the creatures talking in their buzzing voices. Um, And he's writing to Wilmarth not to argue with him, but sort of to offer this evidence. Mm. The skeptic is the one he's most interested in, in having sort of on his side about this. But he's trying to keep his studies to himself because he implies that the things have some kind of human agent who yes. are working against right. uh, spies who are watching him. And he makes reference to one man who even killed himself or something.
0: Right. Like there was, he says, much of what he learned about them, he learned from this guy whose name he never gives, but someone who lives there near Akeley mm-hmm. and who he believed was a spy for those things, the things in the, the hill creatures. Right. Who later uh, killed
3: himself. Uh, yeah, and he, he talks about that th- these creatures are gathering information, but for what he doesn't know, and that they come from another planet, and they're able to live in interstellar space, and fly, and travel, and do all those types of things. But they're on Earth, they believe for metal, that they're mining something, but where they come from, they're not sure. They think it's another planet, or but he often says, the outside. They come from the outside, which could mean another planet, could mean another dimension, who knows. He's afraid that they want to either kill him, or take him away. Take him to the other side or to off the planet or another place.
2: So he's worried about this. It's because of something that he discovered that really sets them on his trail. Uh, and it's partially the phonograph, but really it's this uh, black stone.
3: Which has got some hieroglyphics and things on there. And uh, he he was able to pick it up.
2: He was out in the woods on Round Hill and, and he found it and he took it home with him. Yeah. And once that happened they really started sort of menacing right. him. And what, one detail about when you said they've, they've, they're kind of built to fly around in interstellar space, one of the things that I find really interesting in this bit of science fiction and in a lot of science fiction is the, the vulnerability of the alien, you know, because they're really clumsy here on Earth. They can't get around so well. Their bodies aren't really made for it. No. And to create an antagonist that has that huge vulnerability, I think, is it just makes it all the more interesting to me. If they were powerful, scary, they are, but it's because of you don't really know what their motives are. Right. But physically, they're not they're not going to grab you and tear you apart. Yeah, their
0: power comes from the fact that they know a lot more about how the world works than you do. They, mm-hmm. They're they into science and technology that you can't begin to understand. But physically, they, they yeah, they have this, this vulnerability. They're not built for this planet, this yeah. gravity, this
2: atmosphere, this anything. Which I think backs up them using human no. agents. You know, they, they're not just going to go in and snatch them. They have to no. do sort of elaborate things. I mean, they're like cutting phone lines. and You know, there's stuff that they do that's very conspiratory. Yeah. Um, well, you know, but he, despite the fact that they're these.
0: Inter, interfering with the mail. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But he also
3: uh, mentions this guy Brown, who's sort of a, a town kind of mm, yeah. lazy, homeless guy sort of fellow. But he's been actively working with these people. And he thinks that he's, he's been spying and, you know, getting into mischief basically but also Akeley Mm -hmm. says he's trying to move out of out of Vermont and go to go to live in San Diego with his with his son but it's hard for him to leave because they have the Akeley's have been there for six generations at this particular farm and he's got some dogs to kind of help protect him and yeah they're always barking anytime these things show up because they hate these things and he also ties in finally to uh Yogg-Sothoth and Cthulhu and the Necronomicon, because of course Akeley has you know read the Necronomicon, <laughs> just like everybody has. And he
2: assumes Wilmarth has and as he well. Assumes well they're, has, both, yeah.
0: they're both folklore professors or yeah. ex-folklore professors from New England. Of they're, course, the book is handy, so of course they've read it. Yeah, and he makes
2: reference. He goes, "Now nah, I know that you guys have a copy of that up at the uh,
3: Miskatonic Library."
2: Well, yeah, and, and and that's been established already in the Dunwich War. Right. And and really, the real reason he's writing is to ask Wilmarth to. Stop the debate. Yeah, he wants Wilmarth to shut up about it so Mm -hmm. that
0: people don't go poking around any more than they already have because Akeley recognizes that it's dangerous. Yeah, These things are real and everyone who's climbed too high up those hills has vanished. He wants to get Wilmarth to just
3: take the heat off the whole situation and stop talking about it publicly. Right. He's afraid that if they get disturbed, that they're going to take greater action and might you know, try and enslave humanity or do something bad like that. Because right now, they're only doing this because it's less of a bother to be secretive than it is to take over humanity, which is something they could easily do because they're so powerful and have such advanced technology. Yeah, and he just says, please, stop talking about it
2: and just let it be. It really impresses Wilmar, the letter. I mean, this is really the first chipping away of his skepticism is when he gets this and he thinks, well... I, I can explain away a lot of the things that he's saying, but maybe there are maybe there's something to it. Maybe there's a bunch of deformed people living up there or something like that. I mean, maybe there really is some, some, some basis for it. So he writes him back a friendly letter. Akeley responds to that immediately with yeah. a set of photographs. One is of a footprint or claw print, yeah.
0: right? Yeah. Whatever it has for feet, this is what the print it makes in the ground. <laughs> yeah.
2: uh, there's a bunch of pictures of Akeley on a roller coaster with his hands up. <laughs> screamed No, that's not right. Uh There's a... Uh, um, Another photo is of a covered cave, like a cave, like a cave with a big boulder in front of it or something. Wouldn't that be great, though? Yeah. You know, like, Several photos of Akeley's thumb. No. <laughs> <laughs> sorry, sorry. Yeah.
0: The flash didn't go off. I'm right.
2: sorry. He's like, yeah, this flower, it doesn't have anything to do with anything, but, God, look at how I got the sunlight on. It was really good. Um, he's lonely, you know. But the uh, um, there's a, a photo of a covered cave with, with those tracks leading up to it. Um, another is a photo of druid-like stones on the summit of a hill right now we in this story i don't think we ever revisit that he just gets the the photo which suggests that there's right something else going on up there
0: well i mean and circles of standing stones have appeared in lovecraft's fiction before and they actually exist in the hills of new england yeah there are such circles of standing stones and different people have different explanations for Mm -hmm. who built them and why apart from the photo and the the explanation that the the creatures you know dance around those stones—I don't think—I think that's the end of the stone circle. Yeah, yeah. Situation.
2: Great to throw it out there and then yeah. <laughs> and, and well, not yeah. pay it off. Well, you like, what's going on? He throws there? out a lot of stuff
0: and then doesn't yeah. follow it up. So
2: there's a photo of the black stone, which is in Akeley, on a table in Akeley's study or something. Yeah, right. and of course it's all crazy looking hieroglyphics on it yeah. and then there's a couple of other foot, footprint photos there's a photo of the house there's a photo of Akeley himself with the dogs I think right? I think yeah, yeah there yeah. might be some, some dogs involved there there's also a letter it says uh
1: where Akeley had given only outlines before he now entered into minute details presenting long transcripts of words overheard in the woods at night long accounts of monstrous pinkish forms spied in thickets at twilight on the hills and a terrible cosmic narrative derived from the the application of profound and varied scholarship to the endless bygone discourses of the mad, self-styled spy who had killed himself. I found myself faced by names and terms that I had heard elsewhere in the most hideous of connections. Yugath, Great Cthulhu, Sathagwa, Yog Satoth, Rule, azathoth Hastur, Yon, Lang, the Lake of Hale, Bethmura, the Yellow Sign, the Moor Cthulhus, Brad, and the Magnum Innominanda and was drawn back through nameless eons and inconceivable dimensions to worlds of elder outer entity at which the crazed author of the Necronomicon had only guessed in the vaguest way. I was told of the pits of primal life and of the streams that had trickled down therefrom. And finally, of the tiny rivulet from one of those streams which had become entangled with the destinies of our own Earth. That's a pretty crazy letter.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And that's him
3: hitting the high points.
0: <laughs> yeah.
2: What, what, what's that crazy list of names?
3: Yoggoth, Cthulhu. So Sla- they're all these gods and things that Lovecraft has already established in his story. Except for Yoggoth. Yoggoth, this is the first time we hear Yoggoth, is it? It is. I've listened to every episode of this podcast.
2: And <laughs> never before has Yoggoth ever been mentioned. Yeah, I think that's the first of that. Has he mentioned the yellow sign before?
3: No, I don't think he...
2: Has that's cribbed out of uh, Robert Chambers' yeah, yeah. You know, mm-hmm. Yellow Collection of Stories? Um, I think a cup I think Haster might be from there. As, yeah, well. Haster
0: is somebody else's. There's a few. Or the things Lake of in there. Some of these yeah, are yeah. from other works of uh, literature.
2: So it's again that he's bringing in his mythos. Right. He's taken from other people. It's, it's pretty cool. This is the beginning of a correspondence between these guys where they develop a relationship. They agree that these things and the hellish Himalayan Migo are the same. Yes. Uh, so we give him a name here. Yeah, is He making that up, is Migo really a, a something out of folklore? Or is, uh, there is, I believe, a
0: tradition. I don't think it's spelled the way he spells it. The, uh, Abominable snowman and yeti are things that Lovecraft didn't invent. I think right. him tying it's, it all together and trying to claim that it's all part of the same phenomenon, I yeah. think that might be Lovecraft.
3: It's, it's, a, t- it's a Tibetan word, uh, and it's spelled the, well, it's spelled in the Tibetan language, but it's MIGAU, M-I-G-O-U. And it means yeah, that's how it's transliterated. Yeah. yeah, that's the... It means what? Yeti. It means the Yeti. It's the Abominable Stone oh, Man. Yeah. It's just what the, the, the Tibetans
2: call it. They're working on translating the, the hieroglyphs on the black stone together. They're both, you know, they're kind of going back and forth and working this stuff out. And that, that gets us into chapter three. When the uh, phonograph arrives... And we'll get into that in the next episode. Yeah. Uh, some interesting stuff happens there. That's all we have for now. We'll be at part two next week. I want to thank Andrew for joining us this week. My pleasure. Thank you, Matt Foyer, for doing the readings. Thanks, Matt. Yes. We'll be back at you next week. This has been the HP Lovecraft Literary Podcast. I'm Chad Pfeiffer. I'm Chris Lackey.
3: Oh. Nope.
2: And I'm Andrew Lehman. <laughs> and we're all here at HPPodcraft.com.
0: HPPodcraft.com. <laughs>